0: Well, let's open the scriptures then at James. We're going to start from chapter 1, verse 19. James says, My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. And humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror, after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he's heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself. His religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Let's pray, shall we? Lord God, our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us your word. We thank you that uh, it helps us so much to understand ourselves and to understand you guides us in how we should live. Lord, we pray, give us eagerness of heart and mind and will this morning, as we once again seek to learn from your word. And then give us the courage and tenacity, Lord, to put what we learn into practice. We ask it in Christ's name, amen. When I was at university, I was in the same year as a character called Paul. Paul was a fighter. He was actually from a slum area in Liverpool. No one in his school had ever gone to Cambridge University before. But Paul was determined. He studied hard, and at the same time, he actually learned boxing so that his classmates didn't uh, dare to tease him too much, or at least not to his face. He even actually had to fight against his mother, I remember him telling me once, because she thought he was completely mad studying so hard. He ought to, she told him he ought to be going out and getting a girlfriend and having a good time. Paul got to Cambridge, and he decided he wanted to read politics. Because Paul was a radical socialist. He had visions of reforming the world. And he also boxed for the university, actually. He got enormous pleasure out of flooring all those uh, perfectly poised public school boys who'd learnt their boxing in uh, Eton and Harrow and the like, but who lacked Paul's aggressive determination. He always beat them. He got a blue. If you'd asked me... What uh, I thought Paul would be doing in 20 years' time, I would have told you at that point that he would be leading a trade union or he would be an MP. But a few years ago now, a friend of mine actually met him. Paul was working in the city of London, earning an enormous wage. He saw his radical socialist days as just a period of youthful enthusiasm. Now the British bulldog had become a Labrador puppy. Now I wonder, perhaps Paul began by thinking that uh, in taking this job, he could earn money for socialism. Perhaps he thought that just a, in just a few years with a job like that, he would be totally financially secure and then he could take a low-paid job with a trade union and really work out his socialist principles. But you see, Paul's radical spirit was subdued his city lifestyle in a more effective way than ever the overt opposition of his mother or of taunters or actually of the best intellectual minds some of the best minds in the country had done. Now whether you feel that that, uh, that subduing of his spirit was a good thing or not is beside the point. What I want us to realize this morning is that if our beliefs are not lived out they won't remain our beliefs for very long Uh, james began began this uh, letter with a very startling statement of belief didn't he consider it pure joy said in chapter 1 verse 2 Whenever you face trials of many kinds, he wants, in a sense, to reorient our whole understanding of this world. Now, I know that the house groups who studied this passage during the week, this last week, really struggled with this statement, and I'm not at all surprised. It's at this point that actually Christian faith shows itself to be totally radical, because it says... Our eternal relationship with God is so precious that any price in this world is worth paying if it improves that relationship. uh, James says, pay the price joyfully because in return we get maturity, we get completeness. In return we lack nothing in our relationship with God. And painful though it may be, there is therefore joy in trials. Then James goes on to make a whole series of introductory remarks to his letter. We saw that last time we were studying it, about things we need to believe. I've actually just briefly sort of divided up the passage just to remind you Unfortunately, the overhead's not, not uh, helped that much, just so that you can remember where we've come from because we're, we've been rather broken up. First of all, James said that uh, it, we need to ask God and only God for that perspective on our lives, doesn't he? We need to believe and not doubt, he says. You will not work this out simply by looking at the world. Then he says that we'll never have joy if we think that our lot in life corresponds directly to God's blessing. That's not true at all. The fact is that the financially poor often are spiritually rich. See that? And he says we must be uh, um, honest as well about our own hearts. When trials and temptations come our way and difficulties come, then it's easy to spend our time blaming God and not realize that the battle, as James puts it, is with our own evil desire. And then he says, more than anything else, we need to believe that God gives good things. Everything there is about what we need to believe, isn't it? In the first 18 verses. But most of, the, of James's letter... Is, much more, uh, is, is about doing more than just believing. Most of his letter, in various ways, he's saying that there is no way that our beliefs will remain intact if we don't have a lifestyle which matches them. It almost have guaranteed that Paul, the radical socialist, would soon cease to be one from the moment that he accepted his first job in the city. That's why James spends so much time talking about lifestyle. Because he knows we will only believe the things that he's set out for us in these first 18 verses of his letter if we live them. And today, in the the passage before us, he's going to talk about a lifestyle which believes God's word. The key thing. In verse 21, for instance, he says, Humbly accept the word planted in you. Or in verse 22, he warns us, Do not merely listen to the word, do what it says. He actually is going to paint for us three different uh, pictures of types of people who each in their own way fail to live what you might call believing lifestyles. Now, I say they're three different people. I must admit, I have to confess to you that as I've read this passage uh, through the week, I have thought how all three of these cameos rather accurately describe me. So I don't know whether you will come up come up with that conclusion, but I, I've read this passage as a very powerful warning to myself and I think an important warning to, to uh, many of us here. Let's look at these three types of people. And again, to to help you to to orient where we are, I've I've just produced some some, uh, overheads. The first person whom uh, James describes is the impetuous person. There we go. Verse 19, for instance, My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. James is imagining a person with fire in their veins. Their tongue is faster than their self-control. They find it difficult to listen. They find find anger welling up in them at a moment's notice. Now, British people usually are not like that. They're often quiet and reserved. But uh, I have to say there's a lot of Latin blood in my family, and I personally struggle with that tendency. Every one of us knows, who knows that tendency in their life needs to hear James's solemn warning. Man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Now, James is going to talk an awful lot more about, about speaking later in this chapter, uh, in, 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 the, uh, in the book as a whole. But at this point, I think he wants to alert us to the fact that that particular temperament, the impetuous person, has a real problem as they read the Bible. They don't, as James puts it here, humbly accept the word, they instantly say, yes, but. I know the Bible says I should be patient, but I was provoked. I know that I should love my enemies, but this situation demanded that I seek justice for myself. The sexual morality of the Bible was all right then, but we live in a different age now. The impetuous person says, yes, but virtually everything they read in the Bible. And after a while, that person is quite unable to respond to God's word. If you could read the version of the Bible that they have in their mind, there would be a footnote after every verse. And every footnote would begin with the word, but. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Footnote. But let's get real, you've got to love your family too, and it's a pretty sad person who spends all their time thinking about God, and you've got to have some strength left to do the daily chores, and loving him with all your soul is what will happen in heaven, so I will do it in moderation for the time being. Thank you. Love your neighbor as yourself. Footnote. But everyone knows that we've got dozens of neighbors, and if we tried to look after them as well as we look after ourselves, then we would spread ourselves totally thinly and exhaust ourselves within a month and not do much good. So the wise course of action is to love yourself, and maybe a bit of love will occasionally overflow to your neighbor. And occasionally... If the word of God actually breaks through the footnotes, the impetuous person finds the same anger welling up in them that they have towards other people who challenge them. James says this to us. Therefore, verse 21, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. And humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Now, I've got a lot of little seedlings growing in my greenhouse at the moment. They're very de- delicate. If they're not nurtured carefully, they will die. Well, in the same way, says James, when we are converted, the word of God is planted like a seed in us we must give that seedling room to grow or there will be a crop failure. That's what he says. He's saying it very strongly as well. He's saying there's a sense in which responding to God is our salvation. Christians, of course, know that they are saved by grace through faith. God gives us salvation freely. All we need to do is believe and we are saved. That's very clear throughout the Bible. But as we will see again and again in James, he points out that a sure sign that that is what has really happened to us is that we humbly accept what God tells us and live by it. So I wonder, which bits of the Bible have you tip out in your mind? What bits of the Bible cause you to instantly say, yes, but? We impetuous people need to be very careful of that. We need to discipline ourselves to humbly accept God's word and be saved. That's the first picture he uh, paints for us. Second picture is the forgetful person, verses 22 and following. Now, my mother knew that I had an awful memory when um, she noticed that as quite a small boy, I would regularly forget whether I'd had a midday meal or not. I actually know a minister who was told by his, I I was told this story by the minister's um, administrator. You'll be pleased to know he had an administrator when you hear this story. The minister was told by his wife that the car needed filling up with petrol and the petrol station was only 100 yards down the road. He found himself uh, that morning standing in the queue to uh, pay for the petrol when suddenly he realized he'd forgotten to bring the car. But forgetfulness is actually a dangerous disease in Bible reading. What James says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. A terrible thought, isn't it? That actually in the act of reading the Bible or listening to it it explained, we can deceive ourselves. Now, perhaps we were uplifted. Perhaps we are challenged at the time. But later that same day, we've forgotten what we read and we've certainly not changed. James says that's like someone who casually looks into a mirror every morning but actually never really honestly looks at themselves. Verse uh, 23, anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. You know, we all use a mirror like that, don't we? Brian illustrated that very well, I think. You know, I use a mirror for shaving. Did you see that article uh, in, the, in the papers this last week that uh, the average man grows 28 miles of nose hair in his life? You know, Brian, that's a pretty horrific thought, isn't it? Sends we men to the mirror quickly to sort out that cosmetic problem. But we don't use it for anything more than just a little cosmetic correction. James tells us actually very clearly how we should use the Bible. 25, the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom, and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. Three things, at least, that James says we should do. First of all, he says we need to look intently. In today's language, James might have said that the Bible is designed to be an x-ray machine or even a CAT scanner. It's a diagnostic tool. The rightly used, he says, gives freedom. It's perfect in its diagnosis as well. We don't need to fear it. Now, when I was a, uh, I was a vet in practice, I was fascinated by what you could learn to uh, diagnose by studying x-ray photographs. You know, x-rays don't just show you broken bones. A trained eye can uh, uh, diagnose all sorts of subtle conditions by looking at x-rays. Sometimes, actually, you need to get out a magnifying glass and get right up to the film to decide what you're seeing. It's exactly that stance that the word translated looks intently, conjures up, a sort of stooping forward, to have a really close look. Letting the Bible accurately diagnose our condition is vitally important. We need to carefully examine it. And secondly, says James, we need to keep on doing that. Keep on looking. No one has ever learned enough to stop reading their Bible. One of the great problems with people who've been reading their Bibles for years is they think they've read it all. I have that problem. I read a passage and I think I know that. That can kill your studying of the, of the Scriptures because they will always be showing you new things. We are never perfect. We need to keep on doing it. And thirdly, says James, absolutely vital, we must put what we learn into practice. Now, I suspect a very large proportion of Christians are like this forgetful person that James has described. Bible reading for them has become as routine as shaving or putting on the lipstick in the morning. I want to call you to... To ransack the scriptures actually, to examine them, to search them, to study them for what they tell us about ourselves and the world and God and then to respond. Now, if your Bible reading doesn't sometimes completely floor you with with its diagnostic accuracy and send us to our knees before God, if it never lifts us up and leaves us us speechless in awe at the living God, and most importantly, if it never sends us away with a sense that we need to change and leaves us with that sense which will not go away throughout the day and the week, then we are not reading the Bible as it was intended to be read. A far more profound interaction with God's Word we need to have than the interaction that we have with the mirror when we shave or put on the lipstick. You know, a discipline which I find helps many, many people to read their Bibles properly is keeping a spiritual diary. Write down in it what has has struck you that time that you need to respond to. Confess your failures, uh, rejoice in your triumphs with God. I often suggest, actually, when you're reading the Bible, it's a good habit to try and find every day one thing that you should do. And write that down. One thing that I should do. And then pray to God that he will give you an opportunity to do that today. And then the next day, come back and review how you got on the day before and look for, the, for one thing for that, th- that day to do. It's disciplines like that that help us not to forget the word, let it just skate over us, but to look intently into it and then respond to it. It is vital. A terrible thought that we could be deceiving ourselves As James says, even though we read the Bible every day. Perhaps the uh, most important little picture that uh, James gives us, though, in this passage is a picture of a religious person. Verse 26. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now here's a surprise. You know, I wonder before... Um, Now, this morning, if I had asked you to complete the sentence, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, what you would write at the end? Singing songs of ecstatic praise, perhaps? Listening attentively to a long sermon without looking at my watch? Loving my fellow believers praying and reading my Bible. All of those things are good. James is not against such things. But he says that our religion, that is, our uh, our routine, ritual, worship of God, cannot, for Christians, be measured by our church attendance or our private ecstatic experiences. It will be measured by our care for widows and orphans. He picks out widows and orphans, I think, because they had no ability to earn money for themselves. Today, you might have mentioned the homeless, the long-term unemployed, single mothers, latchkey children. Now, I want you to notice especially the tight connection that James makes between worshipping God, what he calls religion, and caring for others. It would be very easy to to read James as a book which says, effectively, don't be too obsessed with spiritual things or, or, or or the eternal things, the world to come. You've got a world in front of you to serve. Now, he's certainly saying we have got a world in front of us to serve. But he is not saying that we therefore need to give up having an eternal perspective, worshipping God. The church historically has often thought that there is a conflict between looking after widows and orphans and worshipping God. People have either got to get get involved in social action and seek to establish the, the kingdom on earth, Or or, uh, the other tendency has been to write off this world and to be withdrawn into a sort of disengaged pietism. But James holds these two things absolutely tightly together. Again and again, we're going to find this in his letter. He has a vivid sense which permeates the letter that are only ultimate hope our only ultimate satisfaction will be found in heaven how could he possibly have written chapter 1 verse 2 if he didn't say if he didn't think that we will never ever have joy through all kinds of trials unless eternity is absolutely fresh and bright shining before us that is certainly there throughout james But he says, people who have eternity in their hearts, who passionately love God, who see that anything in this world is uh, insignificant compared with eternity, people who are like that will be passionately involved in the lives of other people in this world. We'll be looking after especially the, the helpless and the hopeless people in this world. There is no dichotomy, he's saying, between constantly thinking about heaven and constantly being concerned for the problems of this world. Religion that is pure and faultless, issues in looking after widows and orphans. Now, if you trace the history of the uh, evangelical movement over the last couple of hundred years, you'll find actually it's precisely when what you might call religious observance and social action have been separated that evangelicalism has been at its weakness, the la- at its weakest. The last time that that happened was in the first part of this century. Many evangelicals withdrew from the world and, and focused on our uh, our private personal faith. At the time, the Keswick Convention was at the heart of that movement, though uh, uh, things have moved on since then. At that time, in the early part of the century, many people, especially younger concerned people, became totally disillusioned with evangelicalism because it it was saying nothing to the problems of the world that they lived in. And they abandoned it and decided to establish uh, uh, the kingdom of God on Earth, losing touch with, the, with their Christian moorings completely. Now, the last twenty years or so in this century, I've actually seen those those two extremes refusing. So that once again, I think the evangelical church has a, stands a reasonable chance of maintaining that twofold perspective. And I am convinced it is absolutely vital that we should do that. Pure and faultless religion comforts the downcast, helps the helpless, cares for those whom society has forgotten. Well, this passage is a very big challenge to us, isn't it? I hope you can see that to us as individuals and to us as a church. Uh, I don't doubt that we will be tempted by each of those uh, three reactions that James has sketched for us. I certainly am. Perhaps we feel impetuous. Perhaps there's a yes, but that always impinges itself on our reading of God's word. Be honest with yourself about that. Please. Please. Maybe that phrase even went through your mind at some point this morning. Yes, but. I'm not perfect. There may be some buts to add. But do not leap to that conclusion. Humbly seek what God's word says. Many of us may well be thoughtlessly forgetful. Perhaps uh, this passage will be dusted off briefly in a house group meeting in the next uh, week or two, but then what? James expects God's word to grab us, grab us by the throat almost, and not let us go until we have it. And then there will be some of us, I'm sure, who who have... Um, the so-called religious response, which separates worshipping God from earthly, humble, earthly obedience in the messiness of living out our faith in the real world. Be warned. Don't look around you this morning and say, what is he or she going to do about this? That's between them and God. Don't look at the church and say, what are they going to do about this? If you're a Christian here this morning, then you are the church. There's no they about it. There's nothing more frustrating than than, uh, being a pastor and hearing that coming back, you know. A pastor is completely impotent as a leader unless individuals are expressing a desire to serve the Lord. But more than anything else this morning, more than anything else, if you've forgotten everything else, please don't think that responding to God's word humbly and obediently and practically is an optional extra. This is the word that can save you, says James. Reading this word without responding to it can deceive you, says James. Religion, which is not involved practically in people's lives, is worthless, says James not mincing his words. If we're going to forget these words when we leave here, if we're going to fill it with yes buts, if we're going to say, I'll keep privately just worshipping the Lord in my own way, then James has some very, very serious things to say to us. It's possible that you thought that all you would ever find in the Bible was just that sort of private, pietistic cant, as far as you see. Well, be encouraged. To be a true Christian is to be radically involved in living out real faith in this world. It is not, actually, some uh, uh, escapist hypocrisy. And when you see Christians... Who are really responding in that way, follow them. I want to to call you. Will you join me in that great adventure of serving the Lord with your whole life?